This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. This week our episode consists of two segments. The first is a portion of Winston Churchill's address to the British people on February 9th, 1941, better known as the Give Us the Tools speech. Our second segment is Abraham Lincoln, The War Years, an episode of Cavalcade of America that aired on February 12th, 1941 over the NBC Red Network. It is based on Carl Sandburg's book of the same name. Cavalcade of America was an anthology program that ran over NBC and CBS from 1935 to 1953. A television version aired from 1952 to 1957. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us to continue the podcast. And thanks to those of you who have already donated. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But after all, the fate of this war is going to be settled by what happens on the ocean, in the air, and above all, in this island. Now to be certain that the government and people of the United States intend to supply us with all that is necessary for victory. In the last war, the United States sent two million men across the Atlantic. I mean, firing immense masses of shells at one another. We do not need the gallant armies which are forming throughout the American Union, nor next year, nor any year that I can foresee. But we do need, most urgently, an immense and the supply of war materials and technical apparatus of all kinds. We need them here, and we need to bring them here. We shall need a great mass of shipping in 1942, far more than we can build ourselves if we are to maintain and augment our war effort in the West and in the East. These facts are, of course, all well known to the enemy. And we must therefore expect that Herr Hitler will do his utmost to prey upon our shipping and reduce the volume of American supplies entering these islands. Having conquered France and Norway, his clutching fingers reach out on both sides of us into the ocean. I have never underrated this danger, and you know I have never concealed it from you. Therefore, I hope you will believe me when I say 
that I have complete confidence in the Royal Navy, aided by the Air Force of the Coastal Command, and that in one way or another, I am sure they will be able to meet every changing phase of this truly mortal struggle, and that sustained by the courage of our merchant seamen and of the doctors and workmen of all our ports, we shall outwit, outmaneuver, outfight, and outlast the worst that the enemy's malice and ingenuity can contrive. I've left the greatest issue to the end. You will have seen that Sir John Dill, our principal military advisor, the chief of the Imperial General Staff, has warned us all yesterday that uh, Hitler may be forced by the strategic, economic, and political stresses in Europe to try to invade these islands in the near future. That is a warning which no one should disregard. Naturally, we are working night and day to have everything ready. Of course, we are far stronger than we ever were before, incomparably stronger than we were in July, August, and September. Our Navy is more powerful. Our flotillas are more numerous. We are far stronger, actually and relatively, in the air above these islands than we were when our fighter command beat off and beat down the Nazi attack last autumn. Our army is more numerous, more mobile, and far better equipped and trained than in September, and still more than in July. I have the greatest confidence in our Commander-in-Chief, General Brooke, and in the Generals of proved ability, who under him guard the different quarters of our land. But most of all, I put my faith in the simple, unaffected resolve to conquer or die, which will animate and inspire nearly four million Britons with serviceable weapons in their hands. It is not an easy military operation to invade an island like Great Britain without the command of the sea and without the command of the air, and then to face what will be waiting for the invader here. But I must drop one word of caution. For next to cowardice and to treachery, overconfidence, leading to neglect or slothfulness, is the worst of martial crimes. Therefore, I drop one word of caution. A Nazi invasion of Great Britain last autumn would have been a more or less improvised affair. Hitler took it for granted that when France gave in, we should give in. But we did not give in. And he had to think again. An invasion now will be supported by a much more carefully prepared tackle and equipment of landing craft and other apparatus, all of which will have been planned and manufactured during the winter months. We must all be prepared to meet gas attacks, parachute attacks, and glider attacks 
with constancy, forethought, and practice still. I must again emphasize what General Dillard said and what I pointed out myself last year. In order to win the war, Hitler must destroy. He may carry havoc into the Balkan state, faster. He may march to the gates of India. All this will avail him nothing. He may spread proud and once happy countries. He is now holding down by brute force and vile creed. A learning to hate the Prussian yoke and the Nazi as nothing has ever been hated so fiercely and so widely among men before. And all the time, masters of the sea and air, the British Empire, nay, in a certain sense, the whole English-speaking world, will be only bearing with them the swords of justice. The other day, President Roosevelt gave his opponent in the late presidential election a letter of introduction to me. And in it he wrote out a verse in his own handwriting uh, from Longfellow, which he said applies to you people as it does to us. Here is the verse. Sail on, O ship of state. Sail on, O union, strong and great. Humanity, with all its fears, with all the hopes of future years, is hanging breathless on thy fate. What is the answer that I shall give in your name to this great man, the thrice-chosen head of a nation of a hundred and thirty million? Here is the answer which I will give to President Roosevelt. Put your confidence in us. Give us your faith and your blessing. And under providence, all will be well. We shall not fail or falter. We shall not weaken or tire. Neither the sudden shock of battle nor the long-drawn trials of vigilance and exertion will wear us down. Give us the tools, and we will finish the job. The Cavalcade of America, presented by DuPont. Abraham Lincoln in the War Years, starring Raymond Massey. An original radio play by Robert E. Sherwood, written especially for tonight's Cavalcade of America. Based upon Carl Sandberg, Abraham Lincoln, The War Years. No drama of Abraham Lincoln can have a finer introduction than the words written by Carl Sandberg in the preface to his timeless biography of the great emancipator. of a great struggle, we meet gaps and discrepancies. Many men and women, now faded and gone, lived the drama before it could be written. They do and say what they did and said in life, as seen and known to the eyes and ears, the mind and spirit of themselves. 
or other men and women of their own time. Some of them spoke with action, some with words, some with both action and words. What they say by act or deed is often beyond fathoming because it happened in a time of great stress. February 11th, 1861, 8 o'clock in the morning. A cold drizzle of rain is falling over the Great Western Railway Station in Springfield, Illinois. The prairie horizon is veiled in chilly gray mist. A short little locomotive with a flat top smokestack stands puffing with a baggage car and special passenger car hitched on. Inside and around the brick station, a thousand people have taken off their hats and are looking up at a tall, bearded man on the rear platform. Friends, today I leave. I go to assume a task more difficult than that which devolved upon General Washington. Unless the great God who assisted him shall be with me and aid me, I must fail. Permit me to ask you that you will all invoke his wisdom and guidance for me. With these few words, I must leave you for how long I know not. Friends, one and all... I must now bid you an affectionate farewell. Decatur, they watched from saddle horses. All over now. He'll split the union worse than he ever did his Angaman law. <laughs> Prince of Rails, indeed. Anybody with that abolition ape would make a better president. I say it still should have been Judge Duxon. At Indianapolis, they stood under darkening skies. Mom, Mommy, I've seen him. I've seen him. Well, there's not much to look at. Come on, let's go home. Take your paws, Come on, Sonny. Well, Martha, it's the worst thing that ever could have happened. Big loon with flapping ears for a president. What's going to happen next? At Buffalo, they watched, and some waited. Get a going now with that saw, Jed. You just seen him on that train yourself. Uh, uh, hurry up. Uh, Can't wait around all night for you to pay off that election bet. Next time, maybe you'll pick a winner. All right, all right. I'll pay my election bet. But you boys will see I'm right someday. Yes, I'm the South will have something to say about Abe Lincoln being president. We'll wait and see. Just wait. <laughs> There's going to be trouble. Plenty of trouble. February 21st, 1861. Philadelphia, in a hotel parlor. Well, here you are, Abe. I'm mighty glad to see you. Thank you, Norman. If my journey keeps going on at the slow rate it has so far, it'll be resurrection day before I reach the cabin. <laughs> well, anyway, in ten days' time, you'll be president. Abe, the country wants to know how you're going to stop secession. I can't answer him yet. You've got to, Abe. Now, listen. I want to tell you something. Once years ago, when I and other lorries were riding circuits, there was a heavy spell of rainfall, and all the streams were flooded, and we had great difficulty fording them. We stopped at a little tavern, and there we met a preacher who was accustomed to riding over that region in all sorts of weather. We gathered about him for advice as to how we could get over the Fox River. 
He told us he knew all about that. But he said, I have one fixed policy in regard to Fox River. I never cross it till I come to it. <laughs> Who's that? A man outside wants to see you, Mr. Judd, and the president. All right, Abe? Yeah, yeah, let him come in. Very well, boy. Uh, this way, sir. Gentlemen, my name is Alan Pinkerton. I am a detective in the employ of the Pennsylvania Railroad. I have come to tell you, Mr. Lincoln, that there is a serious plot to assassinate you when you arrive in Baltimore. The ringleader is a man named Fernandina. Probably just another one of those fanatics. But he has a strong group of followers. They're all armed. They're desperate. And, Mr. Lincoln, they're killers. You are their enemy, Abe. You know that there are many who will do anything to prevent you from... Be quiet, gentlemen. Oh, I thought you were alone. Good evening, Mrs. Lincoln. It's just a little political discussion, Mary. That'll be all, gentlemen. I'll give your suggestions my most serious consideration. Very good, sir. I'll see you later, Abe. Good day, Mrs. Lincoln. Good day. Good day, gentlemen. Abe, what were they talking about? Oh, they were just talking about political appointments. Come here, Mary. Come over to the window. Now then, Mary, look down there. That's Independence Hall, where I'm speaking tomorrow. Abe, I'm frightened. I'm frightened. Frightened of what? Of everything that may come to us. Civil war. There's nothing to be scared of, Mary. We may have a pretty rough road ahead of us, but we'll pull through. Everything's working as we planned, Mr. Lincoln. Fine, Mr. Lincoln. Fine. Taking this special train will get us to Baltimore long before you were scheduled to pass through. The town will be asleep. We'll be leaving any minute now. Thank you, Mr. Franklin. Guess I'll get some sleep. Good night. On the eve of his inauguration, Abraham Lincoln escaped assassination by secretly arriving in the national capital. They said it was degrading for a president to come like a thief in the night and make the American people the laughingstock of the entire world. But the incident was soon lost in a swirl of ominous events that engulfed the new family in the White House. Abe, it's just as I keep telling you. You've got to take a stand. What stand do you mean, Mary? You must show the country you're determined to keep the states united. You'll have to do something about it. You'll have to, right away. I know it, Mary. I know I will. But please don't let's talk about it now. Here come the children. Well, Willie, what are you and Tad think of your new home? We were just telling Robert we've never seen such a big house. It's twice as big as Uncle Minion's in Springfield. Look, Willie, look at the painting. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson and Zachary <laughs> Taylor. And more, look. Look here. Yes, I see it, Ted. George Washington. That's the picture Dolly Madison ran off with so the British wouldn't burn it. Hey, Paul. Yes, Dad. What's it, son? You suppose we'll ever hang a picture of you here? Well, I tell you, son, after reading the papers lately, I doubt it. Well, I don't believe them, Pa. Pa, now that you're president, can I have a pony? Tell you what, Willie, we'll have to ask Congress about that. Robert. Yes, Ma? Take the children out on the lawn. They can play there. Very well, Ma. Come on, you two. Will you ask Congress about the pony, Pa? Can we go down to Congress right now? We'll see about it later. Willie. Yes, Pa? Don't play too hard now so you'll be all tuckered out. No, Pa. Well, Mary, I... Kind of think Willie's looking better at that. Maybe we should buy him that phone. Abe. Abe, I tell you again, the situation is serious. What are you going to do about Fort Sumter? 
I don't know, Mary. I don't know what to do, but I got to try to figure it out. Gentlemen, I've called this meeting in the cabinet to discuss the serious situation in Charleston. It is proposed that this government send relief to Fort Sumter. Do you think we should do it, Mr. Stewart? No, I do not. Such an action will provoke instant secession in the South and lead us directly into a civil war. What about you, Mr. Chase? I agree with Mr. Stewart. You, Mr. Cameron? Let the people of South Carolina have Fort Sumter and let us have peace. Mr. Blair, what is your opinion? If we fail to come to the sense of Fort Sumter, we may as well shut up shop as a self-respecting government. We must send relief, even if it does mean war. Mr. Wells? I disagree heartily with Mr. Blair. Mr. Smith? I vote no on sending relief. Mr. Bates? My vote is the same. Evacuate Fort Sumter. If the South wants to secede and form a new nation, let them do it. There's room on this continent for as many nations as there are in Europe. Our course is clear, Mr. President. The sentiment of this cabinet... This cabinet is seven to one in favor of evacuation of Fort Sumter. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for giving me the benefit of your opinion. But the final responsibility rests on me. Yes, Mr. President. And your first duty is to preserve peace. My first duty is to preserve this union. And my policy must be governed by the dictates of my own conscience as to what is right. I shall give orders at once to the Army and Navy to send relief to Fort Sumter. Mr. President, it won't be easy for you to justify this dangerous action to the Congress and the people. I know that, Mr. Seward. I know it won't be easy. citizens of the Senate and House of Representatives. Fort Sumter has been attacked and bombarded and has fallen. This action has forced upon the country the distinct issue, immediate disillusion or blood. This issue embraces more than the fate of these United States. It presents to the whole family of man the question whether a constitutional republic or democracy a government of the people, by the same people, can or cannot maintain its territorial integrity against its own domestic foes. It forces us to ask, is there in all republics this inherent and fatal weakness? Must a government of necessity be too strong for the liberties of its own people or too weak to maintain its own existence? Gentlemen, we cannot escape history. We of this Congress and this administration will be remembered in spite of ourselves. We shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of Earth. We're coming, Abe. We're with you, Abe. Count on me, Abe. We're with you, Abe. We're coming, Abe. We're with Abraham Lincoln 
Lincoln was confronted with a divided nation rent asunder in tragic civil war. And as the months of fear and anxiety passed, many mistrusted Abraham Lincoln, scorned him, hated him, refused to fight under his leadership. And as the clouds of war darkened the nation, a personal sorrow was deepening in the heart of the gaunt figure in the White House. Paul. Yes, Will. I want to see my pony. When can I see him, Paul? You'll see him soon, Will. Soon, Paul? Yes, son. But first, you got to get wet. That's the main thing. Just rest quietly, son. Yes, I would. Close your eyes now and go to sleep. How is he, Doctor? I want the truth. How is he? Come over here, Mr. President. We're doing all we can. You've got to save his life. Doctor, you've got to. We're trying. That's all we can do now. Try. I understand. Thank you, Doctor. You mustn't give way, Mary. I know. I know how hard it is. Sometimes I feel I can never be glad again. But we've got to keep our sorrow to ourselves. There are many thousands of mothers and fathers, north and south, who have seen their own son die on the field of battle. It's up to us to set them an example in courage. One thing to be thankful for. At least our little boy died, an innocent child. Mary. I'd rather have him go that way than have him killed in this horrible war. So cruel. So senseless. Brother fighting against brother. My own brothers are fighting on the southern side against us. Mary, I wish you would not speak of that. Why not, Abe? My brothers are fighting for the South because that's the cause they believe in. Why shouldn't I speak of it? I'm proud of them. I... Hey. Do you believe what the gossips are saying? I'm a traitor. Because my family came from Kentucky. But I'm really against you in the Northern Court. Mary, you don't have to ask me that. Gentlemen, this committee of the Senate has been assembled in strict secrecy to investigate a certain very grave matter. The belief is spreading throughout the country that all our misfortunes can be traced to one person, a spy in the White House. That person is Mrs. Lincoln. Gentlemen, I beg you not to be too hasty. This matter is of the gravest importance to the nation. It certainly is. With what we all know, I'm in favor of exposing the whole presidential scandal. And I go as far as impeachment. Well, now, now, wait a minute. We can't have a public scandal. Not at this time, anyway. Well, Attention, gentlemen. What is it? The president. The president? What? How did he know we were meeting? Excuse me. Will you go in, Mr. President? Thank you. I wish to make a statement to you, gentlemen. It is as follows. I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, appear of my own volition before this committee of the Senate to say that I, of my own knowledge, know that it is untrue that any of my family 
hold treasonable communication with the enemy. The Senate committee was deeply moved and the investigation was dropped. But Lincoln's sadness was not relieved. On a chill, gray November day in 1863, the president was sitting on a platform on Cemetery Hill in Gettysburg, listening to an oration by Edward Everett. It was an oration. It lasted two hours. But the crowd there loved it. Wonderful speech, wasn't it? That's the kind of speech I like. Big words, and old Everett sure knows how to say them. Like to eat an apple? Now hey. we are engaged in a great civil war. Testing whether that... Crop this year ain't so good. ...so conceived and dedicated can long We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate... Hey, old Abe's talking now. Can't hear him, can you? Well, don't make much difference if we do. Abe can't hold a candle to Edward Everett as an orator. But come on, let's try to get closer. Well, I'll tell you, old Abe ain't so bad, you know, but he certainly picked the wrong time to be president. We cannot dedicate. We cannot consecrate. We cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note or long remember what we say here. But it can never forget what they did here. Say, did you hear what it he said just then? The no, where was it? He said nobody would remember what he's saying here. Well, he hit the nail on the head that time. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great past remaining before us. That from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. That this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. And that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. Well, yes, he's finished. Yeah, he's finished. Come on, let's go home. There were many who did not understand and appreciate the meaning of Lincoln's words at Gettysburg that day. But their portent and message has outlived the tragedy and chaos of those four sorrowful years. At last, the superior strength and wealth of the northern states asserted themselves, and the tragic war came to an end. And on March 4th, 1865, Abraham Lincoln was inaugurated for the second time. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right. 
Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. April 14th, 1865, was Good Friday. It was a lovely spring day in Washington, and the President and Mrs. Lincoln went for a stroll. Good day, sir. Good day. Good day there, boys. What's your regiment, son? Uh, 157th New York Volunteers, Mr. President. Oh, yes, Colonel Brown's regiment. And you, Sonny, what's yours? The 5th Michigan Cavalry, Mr. President. That's fine. Well, it's all over now, boys. You'll be going home soon, and there'll be a heap of work for all of us to do. Yes, yes sir. That's right. Goodbye, Goodbye boys. Sir. Goodbye. Good day, sir. You know, Mary, it's been a hard time for the people. It's been a hard time for us, sir. And I tell you, when my term of office is over, we'll go back to Illinois and pass the rest of our lives in quiet. I'll take up law practice again, just as if nothing had happened. It'll be good to be among our own neighbors again. Do you think people will ever feel really happy again? Yes, Mary. People get over these things if they try, even when they haven't much heart for it. Well, you can try. But I don't really feel like going to the theater tonight. We mustn't feel like that, Mary. It'll do us good. It's been a long time since we've been able to sit back and enjoy a real good laugh. About it. Now listen, Mary. many given points. Many millions of people saw it. The line of march ran 1,700 miles. Yes, there was a funeral from the White House in Washington where it began. They carried his coffin and followed it nights and days for 12 days. Bells tolling. Bells sobbing the requiem. The salute gun. Cannon rumbling their inarticulate thunder. To Springfield, Illinois, the old hometown, the Sangamon nearby, the new Salem Hilltop nearby, for the final rest of the cherished dust. And the night came with great quiet, and there was rest. The prairie years 
the war years were over. In the closing words of Carl Sandburg's immortal testament to the great emancipator, the cavalcade of America's dramatization of Abraham Lincoln comes to a close.